I was told I had two to five years to live, two years to live without any kind of treatment, and five years to live with treatment. However, that treatment, she wanted to caution me, was not to, it was not a cure. Um, it's not what we think of, like, here, have antibiotics and you're over your infection. It only was to try to slow the disease down a little bit. Welcome to the Healthy Human Revolution podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marbus, and I'm so honored today to have Kate McGoy-Smith with us today. How are you? Good. Thank you, Lori. It's good uh, to be here with you. Now, wonderful. Now, are you a PhD? No, I'm not. I have my, I'm a former registered nurse, and I have my master's in clinical social work, and I'm a trained family mediator. And I've... You did a mixture of my specialty is uh, clinical services, and I've also been an educator. I've taught at five different universities, including um, at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. Oh, I was nice. assistant to the director of field and the faculty of social work there. So, very um, cool. And so a lot of my therapy clients have ended up being, um, at this stage, uh, themselves executive directors of therapeutic oh, agencies wow. and and other clients as well. And that's not even, we're not even going to get into that part yet, because you have a phenomenal story about something that most people don't even know what it is, but your recovery and then the side effects of medications for this. And I don't even want to begin to go down the I want you to share it because I think it's such a powerful story of using food as medicine, but not only that, but just the spirit of survival. So I think it's really important that people understand that from you. So could you please share with us, you were well and then what happens? Well, I was a very busy mother of three. I had all school-aged children, uh, two boys and a girl. And uh, my job was to start from blank paper, a free on-site confidential counseling service for a rural-based school board. So um, six and a half years later, I was um, supervising 12 counselors in 13 school sites. So I was very busy. In addition to that, I was a regular um, Ask an Expert uh, for about eight years on global television. Um, I did not consider myself an expert, but they still called me that. It was all on relationships and things like that. And uh, I also wrote a column for a rural newspaper called Home Fires, talking about relationships and family dynamics. And, and I also had a private practice on top of that. So I was oh very busy. Um, my whiteboard was full, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And um, in literally, I found about a year prior to a diagnosis, I was finding myself getting more fatigued. And I had just figured that with three kids, and I was also a homework partner at night, and all of that kind of thing, that I thought, I'm just tired, and it, things will improve. I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty glass-half-full kind of person. So, And I think a lot of moms, we seem to put ourselves on the back burner, because there always seems to be a more pressing priority, like our children. Um, And uh, so I just thought to myself, I'll just get better. But what I started to notice is I had a lot of uh, lower leg and abdominal swelling, and I was getting more fatigued. I used to, my husband referred to me 
as the Energizer Bunny. And I felt like one of my battery packs was missing, that I was just much more sluggish. I used to, because I, I loved what I was doing. It was kind of the uh, emergency, like it was like going to an emergency room every day. You didn't know what to expect because we dealt with things from children who were um, suicidal right to, you know, and cutting and very serious issues like that, running away to uh, uh, playground politics and bullying and, and things like that and to helping support parents. So, you know, a whole triage every day. And what I... What I loved about the job was I got to, to me, got to work with people of great courage who didn't want to um, keep suffering. They wanted to find ways to help themselves. And that, to me, takes a great deal of bravery and um, conviction. And so that's a, it's totally inspiring to be around people like that. You know, no matter how much they struggle and fall, they keep picking themselves up and to see that resilience in everyday life is just, you know, it's incredible, actually. So I just loved it and uh, felt really honored that I got to be a part of those journeys with people. And um, so I was, as I said, very busy and I kept just sort of, oh, okay, maybe the swelling is because it's like getting into the summertime or the heat and things like that, that I rationalized it, which I think and mothers were very good at doing that. Um, and then I started to realize, like, no, there's something really wrong. Because I was really, I was just slower and slower in getting up. And I was finding myself even getting in my pajamas when I got home. I was almost in bed before my kids. I just, and um, not really doing a lot of activities on the weekend because I was getting more and more tired. I'd stopped going to the gym, which I had regularly gone to. It was just like things sort of hit it was sort of like an erosion of my life, piece by piece. And I think people, any, when you're dealing with something chronic, you don't realize how much it's, it is like the water heating up with the frog, you know, mm. like you don't realize how much deep hot water you're in until it becomes unbearable. Um, and so I, I ended up going to what we would be considered um, an emergency room. We have these, what we call urgent cares, and they're in our community. And there are many emergency rooms. And I went there, and that's when I was actually diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And my A1C, would you believe, was 15.1. And I felt really, I thought, I should know better. I'm you know, a former nurse. I worked both in the operating room and at the bedside. I was a charge nurse. I, I should be smarter than that. But it happens to all of us. It creeps up. And uh, it can be a very silent one of thinking, just mimicking other things like fatigue and everything else. And mm -hmm. so they said to me at the time, okay, we're going to give you, a, you know, a week or two off to kind of get acclimatized and, and get on what you need to be doing. And I was put on metformin, an oral um, a medication for it and kind of the first stage that they put you on it, but they had noticed some heart uh, irregularities and so i began to get investigated for my heart and i i met with a specialist and they found that i had severe right-sided heart failure and he asked me a number of questions which i later now know why he did they were kind of strange questions to me at the time but i was ended up being diagnosed i found out also i had severe um, sleep apnea as well and my sleep specialist took me back for a second testing you go overnight 
and they put a lot of electrodes on your head and everything and they monitor to see sleep apnea is when you actually stop breathing as you're sleeping during the night and you might not be aware of it someone for example is sleeping beside you might hear you snore and then all of a sudden you don't snore and there's like this sort of gap of silence and that's actually where you actually have temporarily stopped breathing and then you start up the snore again and you've kind of got your breath again and it might not wake you up but you end up having you don't also find that you're dreaming and you don't have the deeper sleep as a result unfortunately so you wake up almost fatigued as if you've you know waken up from a nap too soon uh, instead of having full rested kind of two hour nap that you feel vitalized, you don't, you feel sluggish in the morning and things like that. So the second time I went in, she said to me, she pulled me aside and she said, you know, we've gone through all your tests and everything like this. And, um, she said, I'm diagnosing you with, uh, provisionally with idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension. All I heard was the last part of it, hypertension. Hey, I'm going to be like everybody else. Well, what pill do I need to take? And I'll be on my way and I'll get back to whatever I was doing. And she said, no, no, you don't understand. It's very rare. It only affects two to four in a million. And it's high blood pressure in the pulmonary arteries of the lungs. So it's very localized. So in fact, that's why your blood pressure is like 90 over 50. And so, and that's why you feel like lightheaded and, you know, and I had fainted a couple times and which I'd never done before. And um, so she said, now you have to go to see a specialist. And we're really fortunate. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and we have a center here that serves all of people in lower Alberta and our province next door in British Columbia. And so um, people come to our specialists to treat this idiopathic. And I say idiopathic, it means even the idiots don't know what caused this or what can cure it. So, um, and unfortunately, she also told me at the time, she said, you have two to five years to live, two years without treatment five years with treatment. The treatment is so, not a cure in any way. It will only slow, we hope it will slow the progression of the disease. Can you say that again? Because I think the audience yes. will like, say, you said how many years to live? I was told I had two to five years to live, two years to live without any kind of treatment, and five years to live with treatment. However, that treatment, she wanted to caution me, was not to, it was not a cure. Um, it's not what we think of like here have antibiotics and you're over your infection. It only was to try to slow the disease down a little bit. Um, and, uh, and I was then sent off to the pulmonologist. I had to wait two weeks to see him. And I remember, you know, sort of waking up and I remember I was in the shower and I came out and I said to my husband, talk about the deepness of denial. I said, I don't know if I just dreamed this. I think I was re, re going over like Dallas, you know, <laughs> like coming out of the shower and going, was all that true about JR and stuff? And I was kind of like, is this true? Like, I think I imagined this. I had a dream that I, they told me I'm going to die. And he said, he had to tell me like, no, it's really true. You have this disease. How old were you at that time? I was, um, I think I had just turned maybe 49 or 50. Yeah, so it's a bit of a blur. Yeah, so it was a really big shock because, of course, I, as you know, many of people in your audience, you know, you're entering that stage of your life where you're 
I mean, my kids, the youngest was still in grade school. Um, I figured out the calculations fairly quickly and I realized I won't see them. I won't see my kids graduate because they said two years even. Uh, And I did look up on the internet and most people had died after two years diagnosis. It takes quite a while. I was lucky my diagnosis took nine months. Sometimes it takes two years to even diagnose because it's a process of elimination. It's the rarity of it. Um, And uh, I thought, I'm not going to see them graduate from high school. I won't see my daughter graduate from grade school. I will never meet a boyfriend or girlfriend. I will never see grandchildren. I will never, you know, see any of these things I don't care about going to Disneyland I want to be with my family right. and so how yeah. long ago was that what year was that that was I was diagnosed officially uh, because what they do is they do something called a right heart catheterization and that means that they put you you're in the operating room you're awake and they put a um, metal wire down your uh, artery down that goes through the chambers of your heart into your lungs and you're awake during this and they have intensive care bed on uh, available to you if they should you should bleed and um so they are measuring the pressures in that's the way they can accurately measure the pressures because the drugs are so incredibly toxic uh, recently at a symposium, uh, the do- one of our specialists said, this is like having the worst form of cancer you can ever imagine. And he also said, we don't put anything up past five years because no one lives past five years. Which I thought was, he needed a little more sensitivity training in an audience full of people on oxygen machines, you know? So you were, what year was this, 2007? I was diagnosed December 20th. 2007 so it was a pretty tough Christmas so here you are a mother of three children thriving career-wise yes loving your moments and then suddenly you have this sudden diagnosis that so rare two or four people get every million yes that's progressive and they're going to tell you to die okay And then on top of that, Lori, just within months, I ended up on 24-hour oxygen, just within months, and I became blind as well. Okay, so now you've gone from, here you were a year ago, to this progressive disease. So if we added up, I was diabetic on oral glycemics. I'm, I have severe sleep apnea, so I have to wear a, a machine at night with oxygen. Then I'm carrying a tank around as if I'm scuba diving on land to get my oxygen with my plastic mustache. And then on top of that, I have, a, I have uh, sunglasses on and I have a white cane. I was the modern day elephant man. Um, no one wanted to speak to me. Uh, there was maybe one person two people from work that ever approached me. Um, there were people my husband said he met in the grocery store because we, we lived in a smaller town outside um, Calgary. And he said, he remembers meeting someone in the grocery store and said, oh yeah, Kate's here. And I'd have to stay where, you know, like he'd leave me alone for a minute. He goes, okay, I'm going to go check on something because of course I couldn't see things. And um, he said people would run almost the other way if he was... 
not come and say hello to me. Because I, I terrified people because I was like the car accident that came off the front papers. If someone who is active and vibrant and alive, if this could happen to them, holy cow, what could, you know, could happen to me? What could happen to them, I think? Well, it's almost like a death of a life, right? So oh, you, it is. You, it is. You, had you no your, longer exist. And people right. understand that but lack of... But still alive. But that's a very common feeling in our society. Talk to anyone who's lost their job. When the job leaves them, people leave them as well. And mm. no one talks to them. No one from work usually talks to them. No one follows up, says, are you okay? It's like as if you never existed. And for me, it was like my name was on the whiteboard and suddenly someone erased it. Erased my entire life. Um, no. So what are you going through? Because you seem like such a positive and happy person now yeah. what what is going on in your in the dark crevices of your mind that you know people people don't see or they're not even speaking to you so they don't have the opportunity to see yes. what are you thinking i mean how are you processing that because you also have that training to help others in a mental yes. crisis but what are you going through i mean because this is I know what I would do. I would just cry. <laughs> so, well, me. I certainly, I, you know, I'm not superhuman. I certainly had my moments of crying for sure. And yeah. sometimes there were minutes. Uh, they usually didn't last for hours or anything. Uh, I think that, you know, what was really helpful, Lori, is I was, I feel like my whole life was almost prepared for this in a way. And, and I don't, I mean, I grew up with a developmentally delayed brother who was at that time considered very different. It would have been in, in your country called mentally retarded. And in, my, in, our, in our country culture, it was originally called mentally retarded. We now call it developmentally delayed. Um, and my parents were the first to start an integrated class in the regular school system for my brother to be a part of. Um, so, you know, I was used to difference. That was the first thing. I also wasn't afraid to go into a profession where you don't get a lot of accolades, to be quite honest with you. You know, people, you know, even a hairstylist gets commented on, wow, you did a great hair job. No one ever says, wow, you did a great job on that person's psyche. That just doesn't happen. You know, we give credit to the person because they're doing the work. We're just helping them. We're kind of like a, a tour guide, so to speak, helping them navigate along the way. We give credit to the driver. So I, was, I feel like those kind of things help prepare me um, for that, I also had a very strong belief in working with my clients that my job, I saw people who were suffering a great deal, and I wanted to change that from very sort of wasteful suffering. It's like, what's the purpose of that? It's something very purposeful. I can remember I had a student say to me one day after class, because I, I taught for a number of years in the field of addiction, and she shared how her relative had gone into a coma and she said Kate what is the use of that's like totally wasteful suffering and I said I know that it might seem that way but I've looked after people in a coma and what I found that they do is they bring people together like how powerful is that you they can hearing is the last to go when someone is in a coma state or even when they're in the operating room it's the last thing to go and the first thing to come back when they're awakened um 
And so we know the power of communication. So when I went in to see a coma patient, I always talk to them about everything. The day and, you know, your relative's coming today and, oh my gosh, it's a beautiful sunny day and we're playing your favorite music and I bet you were a really good dancer or something. And I had a conversation just as if they were awake and alert. And, um, and I said, you know, when I listen, when I would come in and I'd see patient, family members around, that person in a coma, their suffering was serving so many other people because they would talk about their life. They would say what's really important. They would hug each other. They would kiss each other. You know, life stood still. And then that very present moment, they were very alive. And that was what the gift of that person's suffering had done for everybody else. And I think that she ended up looking at that situation with her, her relative much differently. Um, and so I realized that we have had, there's what we would call collateral beauty in suffering. The collateral beauty is that it got me to really slow down in a life that I was of service to so many people, to slow down and really be with my kids. My son went through a period of bullying. He was actually able to take a term off and do online schooling. And I helped him. And of all things we were doing, um, Tom Hanks, we were, we were studying for English together, um, the um, castaway. And I'd be like lying in bed, practically hardly having trouble breathing. Talk about, you know, we, were, we would talk, joke about Wilson and everything else. So it allowed us to really bond much more closely. I was able to teach him how to do research on the computer. And, you know, spend, like, those are really precious moments that I might not have had if I had been fully well. Right. So there, that's a piece of collateral beauty to me. Um, my husband was able to, you know, always, my kids, we were always kind of proud of this, that my husband's from England, and um, so he had left his sort of family behind there, and we ha still had, obviously, regular contact, but we felt with the two of us, we really didn't have any relatives close by at all. They were several provinces away and everything. And our kids would, sometimes they would call me dad and they'd call him mom sometimes. And we smiled because we said we never want uh, them to be left. If one of us should die, we didn't want them to be left with a stranger. So we wanted to be very active parents. And my husband really even stepped his game up even more. Mm -hmm. And um, that was collateral beauty right there in that he was able to give more. Uh, my kids all learned how to cook and to do their laundry over time eventually so that now they all feel very proud of the fact uh, my husband, my son is an expert whole grain baker now, you know, <laughs> things that they, again, another aspect of collateral beauty to the right. suffering. So I, I love that because you're taking the, the term collateral damage, you know, it's a war term and, you know, civilians get killed or injured, yes. but the mission is still there. But now you're saying, so now you're having suffering that is yep. purposeful. Exactly. And the resulting, you know, damages, so to speak, yep. are actually collateral beauty versus the collateral damage. So the beauty is restored relationships, stronger relationships, um, yes. love and joy and 
Um, and you know what? I would never have found out, for example, um, I was so blind that, for example, we finally got a big, we only had always had a little 12 inch TV kind of thing. Um, and we used to get some DVDs or, you know, tape players for our kids to watch Jungle Book or something like that. But we didn't watch a lot of television per se. And then we got a big screen TV because I, Collateral Beauty again, I gave away my whole, whole professional library to a uh, domestic violence shelter staff. So because they often have the lowest amount of money in their budget for professional development. And I was able to give them um, all of my books um, because I could not read even a single sentence. I, by the time I got from the, the very beginning to the end, I couldn't remember what the sentence was. It took me, would take me such a long time. So it made me appreciate what a grade one goes through. To be honest with you, it, it was an absolute empathy reminder of what they must go through to struggle to get through the reading first. So we ended up getting a very big screen TV. And on the big screen TV, for example, one day I couldn't tell the channels or anything. Uh, I could just hear the television. And Stephen Colbert came on. I didn't know that was a comedy television. I thought he must be on Fox News. He said such outrageous things. <laughs> and, I, and I found out later when I could see again that it had big words comedy. And I was like, oh my God, because I, I turned it off right away. I thought, man, it's out of his mind. Because you know? <laughs> saying such bizarre stuff. <laughs> I thought, well, oh, this might be Fox News. I didn't know really what Fox News was. I just heard it said some outrageous things. Kind of. Wow. Okay, so you're saying we could have some very interesting political conversations. You could. I mean, becoming blind, can, you know, it, it opened <laughs> up. There, there's some beauty in being blind. For example, we were driving along a roadway. It was a new roadway. And I said to my husband, wow, I I didn't know, where are we? Because it's all this forest, these beautiful trees. And he said, no, there's no trees here. But the way, because what happens, I was legally blind, it's hard to explain to people. Sometimes the shadow of just the way the light hits your retina, sometimes you can see sort of shadows of things. So to me, it looked like outlines of beautiful trees. So there's some incredible beauty in that. And then I had always been afraid of heights, after everything I've been through, I didn't mind heights at all. Like, I was like amazed. I wasn't scared at all to go up a really high elevation and look over the, you know, I was like, no, oh, that's fine. Like, you know, what else could happen to me, really? <laughs> like, you know, really gave me perspective. So again, another piece of collateral beauty with regard to that. But one night, right. I actually, and I feel it was very serendipitous, um, and I think, you know, the guy upstairs really helped me with this as oh, I turned yeah. on the television and boom, up came George Stropanopoulos. He is our kind of, have you have like David Letterman and Stephen Colbert. He would be our, that would be our equivalent. He, he did a talk show and he came on one night. He's a younger guy. He's probably now in his late forties. And he said, I saw, he's just started out by, the, and I can't believe the timing that I just happened to turn it on. And I, and he said, I, I saw a documentary called Forks Over Knives. It changed my life. It might change yours. That's all I'm going to say. And I was so intrigued. I've always been a really curious person. 
Um, and I think that also helped me adjust. This, you know, it was like, this is a whole other world for me to explore. Uh, I didn't really think of my blindness as being forever because that would have probably been overwhelming. That probably would have put me in a pretty depressed state, but I just took it on as like, okay, it's like another research project. I wonder what this is like to be blind. I wonder what it's like to be on oxygen. I wonder what it's, um, and so I, I found out, I went to, I was a member client of Canadian National Institute for the Blind. And I applied because I just didn't have a lot of money. I was on, I'm on disability. And so I applied for a scholarship to get a computer generated program where I could have voice command on it. It's very expensive. And my goal was, I thought, well, what can I do with the rest of my life? And so I had worked with teenagers practically my whole profession. Um, and uh, I thought, I have some things I want to share with my kids because I won't be around when they'll need me. Um, I know the teenage years, kids need us even more for the emotional. They know how to put on their underwear and they know what socks they're going to wear and all that stuff, but they really need us for that emotional hugs, you know, of being Mm -hmm. there and just being with them, the quantity of time Mm -hmm. being available to them. And so I thought, I'm going to write them my goodbye stories and sort of, you know, things. And so I wrote the grant for that. And I said, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life is I want to leave my kids a series of of letters and everything to probably hopefully help them through the different stages of their life. And um, so when I got my computer program and I heard George Stompanopoulos, I asked what is forks over knives? And I wrote to the producers and they said, they told me a little bit about the documentary, not a lot, but they said, it's coming to Calgary. Don't know when, but we'll let you know kind of thing. And lo and behold, it probably was maybe a year later that it actually came to an alternative theater, um, sort of an artsy, not the mainstream theaters uh, to Calgary. Now the alternative theaters are in cheaper you know, cheaper buildings. They don't have all the fancy things. I had to walk up two flights of stairs. You can imagine on oxygen, blind, walking up two flights of stairs. That's like asking someone to climb Mount Everest. I ended up doing that three times because the film so moved my husband and I, we sat in the front row. It's so I could see at least some of it. Um, But hear it, obviously. And we were so, we we sat there and just probably a month before that, our pulmonologist had given us a symposium and he talked about the thickening. One of the things that they discovered with idiopathic pulmonary hypertension is the thickening of the endothelium cells. And then lo and behold, there is Codwell Esselstyn, Dr. Codwell Esselstyn in the Cleveland Clinic, talking about the endothelium cells, the innermost lining of our blood vessels and arteries, and that what we don't want to do is oil can damage and tear them and it can cause and the plaque to get underneath and then ended up getting you know from a nice nice clear um open blood vessel we get it smaller and more constricted and then we're adding the fatty diet of animal products on top of the oils that we cook them in and then we're making our blood sticky. And so it's no longer flowing like water like we'd like. It's more like molasses. And um, the plaque then is 
adhering to the walls of the arteries, making them narrower. And I just went, oh my God. So I have already a thickening. It's already like I'm plaque layered. And then with my diet I'm eating, they never talk to us about nutrition in any way. Um, and especially when you're, you know, they say you're dying, like what the hell, like, eat whatever you want. And I think most cancer patients, for example, same kind of, well, just eat what you, you know, just whatever makes them happy, you know, even when we know that there are cancers that can be reversed or stay in remission and things like that, there's sort of an attitude of as if every meal is your last meal. And so you should have carte blanche and that's not really into empowering patients, unfortunately. Um, right. And so I was just like, all of a sudden I just said to my, my husband and I at, in the movie theater, when we, we just sat there stunned, literally in the dark, before the lights came up and we just said, how to do this. And we were that convinced. We went 100% plant-based right then and there, like seriously. And one of the things my husband smiled at is, um, I don't know if anybody else has noticed this at a screening of Forks and Rice, but I did go to a lot of them, obviously, <laughs> um, is that people left their popcorn half full in bags in the theater and it was like they were just like we're eating it and then went oh my god i they didn't realize it's fatly and oily you know seems like delicious pleasure is actually going to trap me you know into ill health you know and there were i've never seen so much like i could look down and sort of you know, just catch. And I said to my husband, there's like stuff on the floor or something like, and he goes, there's all these bags of popcorn. You wouldn't believe it. <laughs> so I had to smile at that. That, that was, yeah. But we went a hundred percent in and I know that there are many stages to becoming plant-based. And right. so often sometimes when people dive in the way we did, um, they find that people backtrack a bit because they, they don't know the why behind what they're doing. You know, it's not enough just to hear the documentary. They know, have to have a more understanding of the why. And then, of course, their how isn't there because they've had years and years of habits of cooking, a certain, certain cooking methods and cooking certain dishes that they've gotten. That, and food is part of our culture, our comfort, our, our connection with others. So... You know, if I said to someone five years from now, what are you going to have at Christmas time? Or what are you going to have at Easter? They could tell you about the food. They don't know what they're going to maybe necessarily always be doing, but they sure know about the food. It's kind of like one of those lighted lights along our path of our driving path. You know, it lights our way to this is okay. This feels like home. This feels, this feels like that. Ah, oh, I know I'm, you know, it feels comfortable. And we don't realize how powerful we are to be able to change habits. And, uh, and that's what really fascinates me with, for people. Yeah. So now, okay, let's just recap. So you yeah. literally went, so what year was this? Because I was it came out in Netflix um, 2011. Well, we had just, we had followed the forks over knives and we were trying to do it very clumsily. And then when after I'd seen the video, the film, it would have probably been in, uh, it was uh, in, I guess we didn't see the film until 2012 um, when we saw the film. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, 
what I did is that um, I noticed that Dr. Esselstyn was on, obviously, the film. And so I contacted him. Oh. I'm going to have to stop for a minute, Lori. Sorry, my, I got to get a drink of water. Okay. I realize no, my, no, go ahead. I apologize. I'll just right go ahead. and do that. Because I don't, think, I don't want to be end up coughing and choking through this whole thing. <laughs> Not a a problem. No problem. We're good to go. All right, just a little uh, disruption with the cough. We got a drink. You're good to go. So good. Thank you. So, so you yes. Had, um, so I reached out to Dr. I reached out to Dr. Esselstyn, and okay. I spoke to him. At the very end of November, I had written him because he was willing to talk to patients who had heart problems, and I still had severe right-sided heart failure at that time. So I'd lived with the disease um, for probably just about five years, uh, at five years at that point, um, blind, on uh, my insulin, I was now insulin-dependent, diabetic, to be more stable. Um, still had severe sleep apnea. My oxygen levels had gone up to even six liters. Sometimes at night, um, I had fainted a number of times in the community, had some lengthy stays in hospital. One of them was as long as 60 days. Uh, so I was very fragile. I couldn't walk even a block. Um, wow. I had to rest in between. So I wrote to him. And within a day, his secretary wrote back and said, he wants to speak to me. So and also, I, did you, had you had the kidney issues yet? No, no. Okay. That's, okay. that's phase two. Oh, that's phase two. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> but, you know, I was like, I was like, you know, when you, everybody has an older car and everything wrong goes with it at once. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was me. I you can't okay. afford to get rid of the car. <laughs> so um, if that wasn't enough, you couldn't breathe, see, or had poor, we'll get to the kidneys here in a yes. second. Yes, yeah. Okay. So I, um, so I wrote, uh, so he ended up call, talking to me, and just like a surgeon, I had been used to that in working in the operating room, he kind of dictated to me exactly what to do. And the biggest thing he said to me is, you've got to increase your nitric oxide. So I want you to eat a fistful of steamed greens, which turns out to be about a cup of greens, um, six times a day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, in between, and at bedtime. And that's what I did. Wow. I made sure I had that. And then, um, and so, and then in December, I ended up going to see um, uh, John um, McDougall. Mm. And uh, I got to his program. He, my, a friend of mine had just done, died from a lung transplant. Mm. And uh, she was only 38 years old. And she had been in the hospital six months and had um, died. She had even been uh, picked up just by helping her move in a chair and she cracked, fractured her hip. So I was just devastated. I was crying. I was sad. And up popped Dr. McDougall was offering for the first time a five-day program. And I thought it might be within our budget to be able to manage because my husband, of course, would have to go with me because here I am blind on oxygen, can't hardly walk, you know, uh, required a wheelchair at times. So it was like I was very dependent on him to do that. So 
we started trying to figure out how we would do the funding for it. I reached out to relatives and said, even if you could give us $5, that would help. Like, I'm sorry, I you know, we just didn't have the money or anything. And I actually had a relative who left me a message on the phone, said she talked to all of her family, which was very extended, like I think they had 13 kind of thing. It was really big Irish family. And she said, all of us feel like it's really immoral of what you're doing, totally wrong, totally irresponsible as a parent. You should do this. Incredibly selfish on your part. Um, and we can't support it in any way. And so we will not give you a dime toward this. Um, oh. And I really thought about it because I really believe in thinking about feedback instead of just dismissing it or, or being crushed by it. So I thought about it and it, I realized that what really struck me is, you know what, I've been a family therapist for all these years and it's like, so I'm going to say to my kids, when you become a parent, your life does not count anymore. She was fear, uh, fearful that I would have to go to the States with no health insurance. And if I land in the hospital, we'd lose our house and everything. And I thought, you know, my kids don't know. They need a roof over their head. They don't care if it's rented or it's owned. Um, I don't want my kids to believe that my life doesn't count for anything and their life won't count for anything if they become a parent. That's too high a cost for anybody to bear. And I also thought, if this was my child who had this disease, would I be willing to give up the roof over my head? And I would, absolutely, not a question. I don't care. Like, that's not important. I have to apologize again, Laura. You might be able to stop this. I just realized my battery is low. I'm so sorry. I've never had this happen before. Um, well, let's pause again and we'll let you plug in or something. I apologize for that. But I so I, you know, I, as I had really rethought that, and I thought, and so my husband, who does risk analysis, environmental risk analysis, I said to him, please do a risk analysis on me. So he figured out the safest way for us to get there, how we should not, you know, necessarily rent a car and, you know, how we should get there, what was the quickest path to get to the Canada if we had to get back, because I knew I wouldn't be able to fly if I was too ill. So we're, we, would, we figured out a driving route and everything to get me just, if I got on Canadian soil, I would get a health insurance anywhere in Canada. Mm. That's kind of the agreement in Canada with our socialized medicine. I just have to get on Canadian soil um, and then I won't be charged anything. So we did all of that. We even, you know, we went a couple days beforehand. So I would rest and we would sort of pace ourselves and cause my oxygen has to be measured for the airplane and all of that, you know, you have to do all these different things. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know what we went and I ended up learning a lot at the McDougal program. It was five days. It was a combination of the why and the how allowing with cooking demonstrations. We ate there the whole time. I felt a lot better. In fact, there were other people that had naps at times. I didn't even have a nap. I just, I didn't miss one aspect of the program. We were up there, we were awake and, and at the table at 7.30 in the morning. We went through till nine o'clock at night uh, with lunch and dinner breaks. Um, I took every class in, um, even though uh, 
I sometimes didn't bring my cane with me. So he might, John McDougall might not have even realized I was blind because I went with my husband because I didn't, you know, it was a lot of equipment to carry the oxygen and the cane and everything else. So I would just, you know, I could walk with my husband and be safe. And, but we found it really, really helpful and inspiring. And, uh, I literally, you know, um, we found we had a lot more tools to help us. And um, so 15 months later, I got my sight back after five year, over five years of blindness. Wow. Yes. Okay, it was just is, amazing. Do you, wear any, do you wear any contacts or glasses now at all? I, I wear, I do some glasses for like distance for like if I'm watching television, it's quite a distance away. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I could get my driver's license again. And it's funny, I think I've been a little bit nervous about that. So I found I've taken a lot of courses, like I've taken the Ruby cooking course, I've taken the T. Colin Campbell course, I've taken courses on happiness. <laughs> you know, I've taken all these courses, and I said, I'll have my PhD before I get my driver's license again. I think I'm just a little bit more nervous about my reflexes at this point, having sure. gone through all the stuff I've gone through. Sure. Um, and so, but, you know, my husband and I, we've often only had one car. So it's been really a great communication tool because you really have to talk to each other when you have to share a resource. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and I don't really use them for reading, like just as an incident for other people. When I was first diagnosed with diabetes, um, and I started trying to follow, I started Neil Bernard's work and I did redu- get my diabetes down to about seven, but it was really McDougall that pushed it over the edge. And my blood sugar is now like about 5.6 sometimes or even lower. Um, wow. And I'm off all insulin and all medication. In fact, my endocrinologist has said oh, on his own, um, he said to me, this was um, probably a couple of years ago, oh, I'll, I'm just going to write to the insurance company and say you're not diabetic anymore, you know, because you're not. Wow. Like, it's really wow. true. You're just not diabetic. So. I mean, there's a whole other conversation that we can talk about just yeah. what your, your physician said or didn't say. Yes. That's a whole, that literally probably could be an entire conversation in itself. Yeah. So you, so 15 months later, you got your eyesight back. Then yes. what was, now what and I got, else is going I, on? And my oxygen, I went from six down to two, and then I was off my oxygen. As you can see, I'm not on, don't have my plastic mustache. Um, I do still use oxygen at night, about two liters. I seem to okay. still need it a bit at night. Um, and uh, and I, the sleep apnea has gone from very severe sleep apnea to very 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 they even said very 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 mild but they'd like me to have it just with my heart and stuff they just want to be extra careful they just said there's just a slight but my mother had sleep apnea she was not overweight or anything and uh, they said sometimes it can be the sort of partly the jaw and yeah some some things that way so I, I feel really fortunate that way um and uh, I used to have severe um, neuropathy in my feet totally gone totally gone because it was so painful Um, and um, I'm trying to think about some other thing I've lost oh I released I don't like to say I lost 
I released 120 pounds because I never want to find it again. You know, <laughs> when you say you lost something, you usually want to find it. I don't. I'm not praying to St. Anthony for this one, for sure. <laughs> I, I released that 120 pounds. And I, I kept use it the off. same words with patience. Patience, like I said, you release it into the exactly. world. <laughs> yes. Find Let, someone else's thighs. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I don't want anybody to find it. I hope not. Um, but uh, and yeah. please don't bring it back to me. So, um, and so I've been able to keep that off, which I'm really grateful for. And wow. I was, I was a child of, of as many people can relate to, like Weight Watchers and anything. And I think it was actually probably before it was kind of the Atkins before the Paleo. Um, I had one doctor who prescribed me that I was only supposed to have meat and steak and salad. Oh, that was the only thing I was supposed to have. Um, to eat one meal a day of that and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, I mean, and that was a doctor prescribing that and my medical family doctor. So it wasn't something crazy that I had just decided to do on my own. Um, and wow. uh, so I, I feel really fortunate that I've been able to have that. And that's despite, you know, with, uh, with this disease, you still get some lower leg swelling at times, but I haven't had a lot and abdominal swelling and so I've been really fortunate because if you know go to the kidney problems though yeah in 2013 we had a a uh, natural disaster here we had a very bad flooding here in Calgary Alberta Uh, it made I believe international news although I I have lived in America where you don't hear any other news but American news so (laughs) um but, um, and uh, I was happened to be on an IV medication of two pediatric do- de- drugs of antibiotics that my nephrologist knew about, was approved of, everything was one step. Because what had happened is uh, I had been in the hospital in 2010, um, very, very ill. I had gained 80 pounds of fluid and they weren't sure what the heck was going on. Um, my pH was really, my IPH was really uh, acting up. And so uh, I actually had to go on um, a remodulum pump, which is a very toxic drug. They put you on, it's almost like the old fashioned beepers, if you could imagine. And there's a little, little, um, te- almost not even a, te- a little vial of um of the fluid the remodulum fluid in it and there's little these tiny tines that just sort of let it literally sounds like you're ticking bomb because it just ticks away and it it releases just droplets um every so many droplets a minute so it's very timed and you have it and um the the thing is you have to carry around with you um clamps and everything emergency clamps and emergency kit you have to carry every it has to be with you at all times on your person because if that drug for some reason if something should malfunction and you were to get that in you if you got the full two cc's that they give you if it went into your body you, they said that you would die almost immediately it's like being poisoned on the spot so you have to carry the um clamps with you to be able to clamp off and go immediately to an emergency room wow and so this uh, was to, for treatment of that your- was just treatment this was the hundred thousand dollar treatment uh my treatment okay. cost anywhere orally from thirty six thousand a year to a hundred thousand with the iv 
uh, treatment a year. And but that uh, was to treat the IPH, the yes, idiopathic for, pulmonary for my, for my idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension. Right. So the drugs okay. were really are very toxic, and. Right. Um, so what happened at that time, I, they told me my kidney functioning had decreased quite a bit. Um, but I was just so glad to get out of the hospital after 60 days. I was like, I don't care. Let me get out of the hospital. I just, because I used to have fantasies that find a, uh, I need a convertible because I was on an IV a lot. I need a convertible so I'll fit my IV stand. I used to dream that at night of how I would escape because you just sort of go a little bit wacky sometimes you just think you're never going to get out of the hospital and it's wow. not a pleasant place it's not room service like it isn't it's like it's it's you know someone i remember watching a documentary of this gentleman who did non created nonprofit hospitals and he was looking for donors and he said imagine you go into a place and your clothes are removed and you're given a uniform. Imagine that you're uh, given a number and then you're assigned a room and you're given institutional food. And he said, what does that have in common with the patient? That's what a patient's experience is. The only thing common to that is a prisoner. Prisoner goes through the same things. They trade their street clothes for a uniform. They're given a number right on their chest. We get it on their armband. They're assigned a cell. We're assigned a room. And you have institutional food. And we don't think of it that way. And it sounds pretty dramatic because I'm sure, but we have nicer guards. The nurses are a lot nicer and more compassionate, I think. Not to put down guards, but... Uh, right. Right. Um, you know, we don't realize how restrictive it is. We forget. Right. Right. Um, and so anyway, at that point, um, like, you know, I was just so glad to get out of the hospital. So my kidney functioning, it was more in the sort of 39% or something like that. And I'd gone to kidney specialists and said, well, we're not worried just yet. Like, you know, just keep you know, I was on a low salt, very low salt, no, really no salt added diet. I didn't try to have very much processed stuff. I was learning more and more. I wasn't plant-based in 2010, but I was trying to be more careful about things. Um, and uh, so then what happened was I ended up going to the hospital. I found out in 2013 because of the floods and these antibiotics that I was allergic to that I didn't know, my kidney functioning went down to 4%. So I was in trouble. So 30 days in the hospital, um, my husband brought all my meals to me. Uh, I even, the dietician there, she like, I asked for oil-free vegan because I knew those words would be more familiar to them than if I said whole plant-based. Right. Um, and they would bring me uh, milk and they would bring me meat. And, and I just would say, no, thank you. I was polite. But after a while, the person who brought the tray in would literally not just slide it onto my table. She would drop it from about six inches to a foot. Um, out, and I think that was her way. She didn't say a word, but we know nonverbal communication is very powerful. Uh -huh. And I asked if I could see the supervisor. I asked if I could, the supervisor talked to me and was trying to understand oil-free vegan. And I had to explain to her what that really was. And then um, I said, is there any way I could speak to the dietitian? Because I think that she might be able to suggest some meals I could have. And... Uh, 
because my husband, of course, had to work. He was the only one bringing in any money. And so I'd have to wait for him to be able to get the food because I wasn't well enough. Even I was in bed, I couldn't even get down to the kitchen to warm up the food or any. So it was really long days to wait to eat. Um, And uh, so when she came in, she said to me, I said, explained to her I had taken the T. Colin Campbell course and the Ruby course right. and the starch solution. I had done right. all this stuff. This is all evidence-based research. And this is how it's improved me. I'm non-diabetic and all this stuff. And she just put her hand in the shape of a stop sign and she said, just stop. She said, there is nothing I can tell you and there's nothing I can do for you. And she walked out. Right. And so... When I ended up telling my kidney specialist about it after I got out of the hospital, so I just kept bringing, I get, my husband kept bringing food to me and stuff. And interesting though, it did, word did get around because I was such a problem patient to this dietitian. Word did get around. Yeah, word did get around, I think, to the nurses because, and people who've ever been in the hospital, they know how busy nurses are. They're assigned like maybe seven patients and everything. They hardly have time for their own patients. I had pa- nurses coming to me that weren't my nurse and they'd say very quietly in hushed terms, she goes, is it true that you aren't diabetic anymore and it's because of food? Like, how did you do that? I had so many of them come to me um, and it was, uh, so I would just quietly say, you know, this is what I did. This is what I followed. And uh, so it turned out there's that collateral beauty of that kind of suffering of someone not understanding or misunderstanding or not wanting to understand and other people it coming out somehow, you know? Um, and so I, I was really pleased because at least they were willing to hear that. And uh, my nephrologist asked me after the fact, he said, why didn't you tell me about this? Like, you know, because I said to him, he was going to refer to me to a clinic. And he said, oh, I want you to see the dietitian too. And I said, that's when I said, like, I thought I'd had enough. I said, you know, I'm not sure I'm prepared to do this because this was my, I explained my experience at the hospital. And he said, well, why didn't you tell me? I said, you know what? I've been a nurse too long myself that people get labeled a problem. Um, you don't want to be labeled a problem in a hospital. So I just did my own thing quietly, with, tried to not cause any trouble or ripple anything, you know, waves or anything, because I needed, I did not want to come out of the hospital worse than when I came in. And um, so, you know, and, and he understood. He ended up actually writing a very empowering letter on my behalf to the dietitian, say, just leave her diet alone, just respect what she's doing. And because I said, otherwise, I will not go to the dietitian if I'm going to, I need people on my side. If you're not on my side, like, I don't know what more proof you want, but right. this is what I've been able to do with this. And wow. the fortunate thing for me is I have blood work that shows like, like I have all these medical records. My medical records are like that thick. They have more than one volume of me now because I have something over like, it's in the thousands of blood tests I've had, thousands upon thousands. And the only thing I have changed, the only thing is the food. And as a result, I've gone from an entire page of medication to now I'm on one, two, three medications, that's it. And one is once a week. It's a hormone because of my um, 
it's a hormone injection I have to have because of my kidneys, because my kidney function is now at 12, ranges from 12 to 14%. Never had to be on dialysis. Sorry? Is it EPO? It's Aranesp. Aranesp. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. And so, um, and so I, uh, I've, I've never had to be on kidney dialysis. And it was because my kidney specialist, he really went to bat for me. He said, you know, he would come in and see me. He said, every day it was like, is she going to go on dialysis today or not? And I'd say to him, look, I'm really trying. Please, like, give me a chance and whatever. And, uh, uh, like, I followed, uh, just kept on my diet in the hospital and everything. And I had a neighbor next door. Uh, uh, quite an old gentleman next door and his wife came in and she was, uh, she would bring him in Kentucky fried chicken. Oh my God. And she would get mad at him if he didn't eat at all, even now though he was served a meal. And I was like thinking, and and one day she came into me in tears and she's as skinny as a rail. And she had typed, she was diagnosed with type two diabetes and she's what we call a TOFI. Some people may be, familiar with the TOFI and some people might not, but TOFI sound, it stands for thin on the outside, fat on the inside. (laughs) And so just because someone is thin on the outside doesn't mean we don't have x-ray eyes to see how much plaque is built up. Um, And she was really, because diabetes is an issue of fat, unfortunately. It's fat that's been locked in the cell and you can't get insulin, you can't get the gum out of the lock to get the insulin in. And um, and she was bringing up donuts and all sorts of stuff. And, uh, and, and the irony was she was quite furious at one point at me because I had a window. I had the window bed, and yet I was blind. My, I'd lost my sight during the, the time when I was so sick with the kidney functioning. I lost my sight again. Oh, wow. Uh, temporarily. And so I couldn't even see out the window. So I thought, you're complaining about the window. I can't see out of it. You know, you can have the window. <laughs> you know? Uh, and it's sort of, you know, and I thought it was just so sad to me because, you know, type 2 diabetes is, it's a lifestyle situation. And if, if people had, if we could match people with, the, with clear, re, clear evidence-based information for them to know that if they do these things, they're going to optimize their health as much as possible. And that's how I approached it because, you know, when I had this terminal illness, people, and people would say, well, of course, it's because you were so, you know, you're terminal, like you didn't have any choice. Your back was up against the wall. I can tell you that my husband and I and another patient started a support group for all of us terminal patients. And do you know that they saw me go from being on oxygen, even using a walker, even using a wheelchair at times, to walking, ambulatory, and no mustache and everything. And they never wanted to follow what I was doing. Wow. So even when people, so it's not about, uh, your back does not have to be, you do not have to hit bottom. You can raise your bottom and say, why do I want to be tired all the time? Why do I want to be sick all the time? Why do I want to have an upset stomach? Why do I want to be constipated all the time? Why do I want to have all these blemishes on my face? Um, You know, why don't I want to be livelier, live longer? After all, you know, we work a long time in our life. Why wouldn't we want some years where there's no work at all, you know, and we can do what we have total freedom? Um, Why do we want to enter retirement years um, nearly dead, you know? And so it's... it's, 
or dead, sadly. Yeah, 40% <laughs> of people who have a heart attack never recover, never get to pick up a fork again. And so it's um, something that, you know, I don't think you have to be at the end of a line of something. It, yeah. It's pretty sad because it's like the difference between you get a minor bumper, uh, you know, uh, a fender bender compared to a major collision. Do you really have to say, I'm going to slow down so I, you know, um, so I don't get a, you know, and, to, you know, till you have a major collision, oh, I guess I'll slow down now. I'll, I guess I'll stop at the stop sign now. You know, it's kind of that difference. Uh, I was talking to someone the other day and I said, you know, if, if she's gotten some warning that her blood sugars are climbing, I said, look, you've, you're just at the fender bender age. That's <laughs> going to be easy tap out. Like, why wait till you have the major collision and your windshield and all the, you know, and the jaws of life have to get you out and everything else. Like why put yourself through that? It's going to take longer for your body to recover, obviously, because look how long it takes for your car to recover from that and all the inconvenience and everything else. So it, right. it's a matter of, we have some choice. We are really in the driver's seat around this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but what we have is messages around us, unfortunately, that tell us that, you know, you just got to live with it. It's just chronic. I mean, we have the American Diabetes Association saying the same thing all the time. It's just, it's chronic. How do you live with it? They use words like that. Right. And we call things that aren't really food, food, like right. all those processed products. Um, I've talked to T. Colin Campbell about this on the phone. And, and I said, you know, maybe it's the writer in me. But I don't like to call things that are all these processed stuff food at all, because I think it's really confusing. Right. Like, why would I call it food when it's really not food at all? Frankenfood. It's a bunch of chemicals. It's frankenfood. Frankenfood. Yeah. Yeah. So, Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's recap for Sure. <laughs> it's, like, uh, it's, it's like mind-blowing, right? So, and just to reiterate, and I had mentioned this to, to you before that we started the interview, that when I interviewed Ocean Robbins, you know, here's someone who has interviewed and met thousands and thousands of people with his work with food. And I asked him, who's the one person or what case stands out in your case was the one he mentioned. And I'm very honored by that. As I said to you, when you shared that story, it's like, I feel I'm like one small pebble in a whole beach of thousands and thousands and millions of pebbles. Yeah. But some of those pebbles are shiny and you're drawn to them. And so I, I think you're obviously one of those, as I will say you and another gentleman, Jim Bala, you two stories will stand out in my mind forever. Um, but what's so fascinating to me is, is that how you describe this and I can't get away from the words collateral beauty. Yes. It's just so uh, empowering to me. And to see this beautiful transformation from a busy mom, happy practice, crazy life, but enjoying yep. it and doing your thing to devastating illness, to fighting for your life, literally yes. with every morsel in people trying to shove other things down your and saying, no, we don't agree with you. Family's rejecting you. Yet you know in your heart that this is the way to go to this now you've recovered to your optimal health you can be. Your, your kidney function is not 100%, but it's enough to keep you off dialysis. Yes. You're off of medications except for three. Yes. Your sight is back. You're probably better sight than majority of people who wear glasses. And so here's this incredible transformation and this power 
powerful message that you have, but I like what we were talking about before the interview that I, it's unfortunate people are missing out on all the cool stuff we were talking about, but I'd like you to talk a little bit about that because you have such a unique background to have now suffered. Like you said, you were prepared for this. You literally transformed your own self, your journey mm-hmm. to now being able to share that really cool thing that you say, and I agree is missing in a plant-based lifestyle. Can you yeah. tell us what that is? Yeah, I think that, um, and uh, you know, when, when you decide to do, you know, whole plant-based living, and I really emphasize the living because you really become alive with this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and, and is that I'm very interested, as I've had 25 years experience um, in the fields of addiction, uh, mental health, and, uh, you know, doing all this kind of counseling and groups and family therapy and everything. And I'm really interested in the social and psychological aspects of this kind of living, uh, because I think what happens is people end up, it challenges our level of sense of confidence and competence when we take on this new habit. And, um, and we are connected by others a lot around food. You know, as I mentioned to you, it's our comfort, it's our culture, it's our, uh, it's how we reward ourselves, it's an aspect of nurturing. Um, uh, we use it as distraction. Uh, people will tell me how their, their parents fed them with food, like, you know, fed their soul kind of thing with food. Um, we say chicken soup for the soul, for example, you know, but, and it, notice it's a food item, it's not something else. So we really relate a lot to it. And breaking of the bread fits with uh, uh, Christianity, um, that kind of thing. So food is in every element of our life, you know? Um, and so, all of a sudden, when you're, you're eating, you know, you're at a table and it feels kind of divided. And that divided table aspect, how do I keep that connection? And so I say to people, like, you don't have to give up who you are, what you value, um, or who you're connected with in order to eat this way. Because, you know, we often know in our hearts, most people do know, hey, that's really not great to pick up the KFC or the McDonald's. So, you know, we make jokes about it, but we know it. It's not, it, it's not a, a, it's not a pleasure that's a lasting pleasure. It's a very temporary mm. thing. And we usually are not really satisfied with temporary things. We want pleasure mm. to last for a long time. And so there's a mm. deeper kind of pleasure when our body is working well and we feel good and we have the energy to be with people. For example, we're doing this on a Friday afternoon. Now, there's very few people that would interview someone on a Friday afternoon, but because both were, we're both plant-based, we're not intimidated by doing a Friday afternoon. It, Most it people go, you. I'm dead, I'm in. I'd like well, that. That's it for me. And it's a good point, too, is I drove 3,000 miles this week, and I got home at, I went to bed at midnight last night, worked my full shift at work, and now I'm interviewing you. So Yes, and, <laughs> so. It's, and it's sort of hard to explain that. And the only way I've used the analogy of that is I'll say to people, when people say, like, how does the food help you? And I'll say, it's like, imagine going in, you know, you everybody kind of knows now, like, you know, your feet are most swollen around four or five o'clock in the evening. So that's the best time to buy shoes because you want them to fit every time, every part of your day, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I said, it's like going in, you're the same weight, your same swollen feet, and you go in and you put on a new pair of running shoes and you feel a spring in your step. 
that's kind of how this overall makes you feel. It's like a spring in your step. And you can't explain it any other way because you know you haven't suddenly lost 10 pounds and you, you don't suddenly have a lot of energy and you didn't have a nap in the store, you know, and you've got the spring in your step. Then you have to add to it, you never want to get rid of that spring, you know, but we do get, there's something called hedonistic pleasure where we get used to something, you know, and it's kind of like, and how I can explain that as analogy is you're driving along, you do the same route home every day, and it's now it's twilight or it's getting into darkness, and you're used to the lights being there, and you're used to all of that. All of a sudden, the lights pop out. You know, you took them for granted before. You got used to the lights always being there, and all of a sudden, when the lights are out, then you realize, oh my gosh, this is really dangerous. There's no lights here. And you're kind of cursing the darkness, but we often don't give gratitude for the light, right? We right. just kind of like, it's what we notice. So first of all, we have to realize that we can get caught up in kind of what we call hedonistic pleasure, that we get used to something. And so that's where we, you know, that's where even just thinking about having a common cold, which we can all get, no matter how healthy we are, we can occasionally get, maybe the cold is not lasting seven days, it only lasts two days in comparison because you're now eating in an optimal way. Mm -hmm. um, but it can remind us of like, yeah, it does feel better. Or if we have a slip, we can use that for our psychological well-being to examine that slip. And I call slip sudden lapse in planning is we can use that to go, gosh, I don't feel as good, you know, because I ended up eating something that was fried. And, you know, I was, you know, I did it impulsively. And I often, in our family, we call it the McDougal Revenge Act actually, because we often, all of us get diarrhea if we had, you know, if we didn't know there was oil in something, we find out. We, we have a lot of thinking time on the toilet to find that out, that we've made that mistake. But we can flush our mistakes away and keep going. Um, but so I'm really interested in the psychological, like when we have that slip, a sudden lapse in planning, what do we do? Do we beat ourselves up? We, do we go into not a shaming? And guilt, like guilt leads to shaming, and shaming is really an attack inwards. Um, right. Guilt is a warning bell, like, hey, you know, that probably wasn't a good idea. Mm -hmm. I was really upset. I reached, it's an old habit. I reached for something to comfort myself. And guess what? The easiest mm -hmm. thing to reach for is some kind of food item. You know, it's a lot harder to pick up the phone or text someone or, hey, can I have a hug? That's more risky and more vulnerable than I can just go to McDonald's and grab something or get, grab an ice cream cone or whatever is that comfort thing for you. That, right. you know, there, there's no one who's going to question you there. They're not going to refuse you because they want to sell you something. Um, a friend might say, I'm busy. I, I can't talk to you right now or whatever. And then we have to look at ways that we can self-nurture. And that's that psychological aspect. How can we do, because maybe we're missing out on some self-nurturing right then and there. Mm -hmm. Maybe right. it's to slow down. Maybe it's to think about it. Maybe it's to listen to a piece of music to replace. Right. We can't ask someone to stop doing something if we don't replace it with something else. And that's understanding. Right. And then there's that sort of social aspect of how do I handle it with other people? Because there's other people that can be really threatened when we make a change. Because they can think, am I being left behind? Are you saying that, you know, you didn't like it as well? Think how threatened sometimes people are when we compliment them on a hair style. We say, oh, that looks so good on you. And 
some of the reactions are like, what do you mean? Like, you didn't like it before? Like, you'll say that bad before? Like, now you're complimenting me? Like, you're going, ooh. Um, so that even feels like a risky emotional landmine sometimes. So it's a matter of kind of going into it and thinking about your beliefs around having dinner with someone. What's the most important thing? Is it to break the bread or is it the company? that accompanies the bread, you know? And what do I want to say? And can I have a pre-conversation with someone and say, you know what? I might be eating a little strange for you, but I'm just trying something new. I'm just trying this mm -hmm. on. I know it might be kind of crazy. And sometimes if we put it down first or, or even saying something like, you know, I'm kind of hesitant to tell you this because I don't, I don't want you to think I'm nuts or anything. And then often people will kind of go, oh, well, well, no, I won't think that. Please, come on, tell me. So it's nicer to be invited to tell someone than to end up, you know, sort of putting it on someone. Mm -hmm. um, even sometimes people are really into, I'm into spontaneous, so I'll just go out and we'll forage for something out there in the, the wild of the, the takeout industry. And, but you know what? It, it helps we have online resources and it helps to take a look at them first ahead of time mm -hmm. and then pick what we're going to try to eat if we're right. going to, or eat something beforehand. So it's those sort of psychological yeah. things. But one of the things I also found is my husband and I were at a stage where our kids were, as they were getting older, of course, guess what? We have to make sure our, you know, sometimes people leave their couplehood in the delivery room and they have to reclaim their couplehood. Uh, we were, we usually had pretty regular date nights during the week. Um, but, you know, life gets busy too. And, and so we had to kind of reclaim that as we moved into the intimacy of just the two of us as our kids got older. Like that's, there's no buffer or anything. There's no distraction. All of a sudden it's just the two of you. Mm -hmm. And you find out, wow, we're both very messy or something like that. You know, <laughs> you blame it on the kids before. Um, and so I found my husband and I just as a couple it actually brought us closer together. It had that, uh, we, we tried to make that into an opportunity closer together because it was kind of like, we're in Survivor. It's like, okay, we're, we're traveling somewhere. We've got to look ahead and try to find food. And it's kind of a very primal, like we're out this together. We're hunting together for this food, hunting and gathering for our food. And so you end up communicating more and you also have a common vision of something. So here mm -hmm. we are at a later stage where our common vision before was not only that our friendship but also being parents but we're not active parents anymore we're consulting parents you know and we don't we get invited to consult you know we can't impose our consulting on them okay so, I, I just gotta mention something yeah. right there when you said that consulting because i have three adult children myself they're one will be yes. 25 in a few weeks well actually about to One's going to be 23 in April, and then I have one that'll be 21 in October. And so I was like, I always tell my friends, like, this, this parenting adult is hard, but I yeah. like this consulting parenting. Yeah, parents go through, I, I've taught family therapy for many years, and I talk about parents going from being very hands-on to being mm -hmm. then moving into mentoring. Because if you think of the junior high, high school years, you're more like mentors. You're kind of, okay, how do we plan this? What, mm -hmm. what do you think would help if you're talking to Susie? What do you want to say to her? Like, Ed, here's what girls do. Here's what boys do. Here's what others do. You know, gen mm -hmm. not gender relationships, that kind of thing. We do all that mentoring. Mm -hmm. Then we move into consulting. You notice no advice mm -hmm. giving is in there. 
in any way, right? Um, and consulting consultants are only consulted upon when they're asked. It's an invitation <laughs> by invitation only. That's a hard thing because otherwise you go into advice giving and you're usually not invited anywhere. <laughs> I think this is brilliant because I almost think we could adjust this to physicians. As I help people move to a plant-based yes. diet, <clears throat> yes. first it's literally hands-on everything you got to yes. take the baby and take the diaper and then they start crawling lots of wise and house like very yes. specific wise and house and then it's the mentoring like the social what do i say how do i say this what do i do yeah. blah 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 and then it's the consulting so i have had patients do this and it's it's really cool to see them do this growth pattern but some require yeah. a little extra each child's a little different yes <laughs> But it's exactly the same thing. And then before you know it, they've left home and they don't come back anymore. On occasion, no. they call and say, hey, how are you doing? Well, this and, and that's what, we, what, what we really yeah. hope is we go from, you know, if you think with parenting, we go from an external uh, uh, locus of control where we're telling them, okay, you need to wear your pajamas. You need to wear your underwear. You need to have socks on. You need to have mittens on and stuff like that. To we want them to move to internal control. And so really that whole thing is the idea is that we want to have an autonomous person at the end that they can actually say, I need help here. This is where I need help. This is when I need help. This is how I need help. So that they're being the identifier before we're identifying for them. Here's some things you need to know. And that's kind of in that stage of that very beginning of the high and wows, high, high why and hows of plant-based um, coaching is that you're really kind of explaining a lot of stuff to them. And you're kind of being that external control of, yeah, this is how you set things up. You're a little more directive with regard to stuff because you're trying to impart information. They're ultimately in control. They're ultimately the one who's going to make the decisions if they're going to do something or not do it. And then you move into that, the mentoring of where you're applauding them, you're supporting them, and then they notice that they're having a couple stumbles. Here's some other, the, as you said, the nuances of how do I handle some of the relationship stuff that happens mm -hmm. with regard to that? Or I'm disappointed, I didn't lose as much weight as I expected, or everybody expects me to have, be ter per perfectly thin. Not everybody is gonna be perfectly thin even on a whole plant-based diet. And we don't wanna have body shaming either because some people, again, mm -hmm. maybe have been in a major collision Versus other people, they never, they had maybe had a fender bender or never even in an accident. They, you know, they've right. prevented it beforehand. Right. So we have those differences as well. Yeah. And then, um, then you move into that, that consulting where they come to you and say, you know what, I'm just having trouble with this one little thing. Right. And, and then you can, okay, fix. And then you might see, talk to them three years later and another little fix right. or whatever. But they know enough to when they're running into trouble because they have that right. their autonomy themselves. And that's what's really cool is then you start seeing they're turning into parents. Yes. Coaches, right? So I had a patient who, um, when I went on a, our whole food plant-based diet journey back in 2012 in Colorado, who I started, of course, incorporating my patients into this journey. And what's cool is that they they continue to do well and they followed my course and they would listen to podcast interviews and different things. And I had one patient who uh, last year sent me an email 
and I hadn't talked to her in a while. We're friends on Facebook. She was yeah. keeping track and listening to different things. And she had sent, um, had seen a patient or a friend of hers from high school who had lupus or, and some other health issues. And she shared a podcast with that person. And the person was like, Hey, thanks. But you know, didn't really talk to her a year later, this patient had a person, her friend had reversed lupus, lost all this weight. And then she was helping others lose weight. And she goes, I just wanted to share with you these ripple effects. And yeah. for me, that's just like, just the coolest thing. It ever. is. And that's what's so great oh. in, uh, in, in group work that I've done is you, you really, you can benefit from people who've kind of, they're further on the path because yeah. they become um, supporters of people who are, who are right. newbies on the path. And so you right. go from, you know, whether plant curious to plant committed, they start to be able to share their knowledge and they feel in, empowered right. to say, hey, and I think the only thing that is helpful with the group facilitator is just to caution people if they notice it, is that one person's journey might be different than another's. Right. That we don't want it to be sort of like, okay, it's a totally cookie cutter path. You must follow A to B to C and that you'll get D because right. everybody goes on a little differently. And that was the mistake that happened with a lot of AA people, for example, when they mm. use the group model is they you just have to do it this way and only this way. And what mm. we've come to realize is that people, there will people who will give up meat first, then they will do dairy. Other people will give up dairy first and then meat or whatever it is, they will figure out their way mm -hmm. uh, of doing it. And everybody, right. you know, and they'll also, there's a, a learning on the psychological part is how do I deal with failure? Because failure will happen. Mm -hmm. um, we're just mm -hmm. never, we're not consistent enough to be successful all the time and we're not consistent enough to be a failure all the time. So we will have a <laughs> mixture of the two. And so right. it's a matter of what, what's my belief around? Because as you mentioned when we were talking earlier off the air, is how important beliefs are over mm -hmm. motivation. Mm -hmm. And beliefs are kind of our landmarks. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example in the parenting world. Uh, you have a kid that's been acting up and you've promised him that they're go you're gonna, we're gonna go to the movies on Saturday night. What do most parents do? They say, okay, you know, maybe Johnny act, it was started to behave the last two days, but the rest of the, then he acted up again. And you go, well, that's it. You're not going to the movies. And I would say to a parent, you know what? I don't think that's helpful. Mm. I'll tell you why. Because then you're never going to have a positive experience with Johnny. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you still go to the movies, that can be helpful and say, you know, I was, we were going to go out for dinner, but because you've acted up, we're just going to do the movies. And I'm glad we're going to have a chance mm -hmm. to do that. And next time, mm -hmm. you know, if you're able to add one more day of good behavior, then mm -hmm. we'll be able to do movies and dinner. You keep perfection out of the way of progress. We want to. We want to really because kids have to have. We and families need to have positive memories. Mm -hmm. If we always end up withholding things that are pleasurable from people that join us together that connect us, then we never have the experience of connection. And right. so, why would I want to make you proud of me, mom or dad? Because I can't get close to you anyway. It's never going to happen. Right. So Absolutely. it's, a, and, and it's a matter of that for anything in life. If you think, you know what, I'm probably going to need, probably mentally I know that because of all the evidence being in, that this, this way of eating makes the most sense. 
this way of eating is going to try to optimize my health no matter what. And I know that when I went into it, um, I know that the only thing that was a possible, and it's not a cure because you're just trading one set of problems to another. And I know sometimes people have, it's hard to get their mind around it, but the lung transplant was probably the only thing that would keep extend my life. However, there's lots of problems associated with a lung transplant. You're not like a Mr. Potato Head where you just unscrew the nose and you screw in a new nose. You have all the drugs and all the problems associated with taking care of a new liver in you or a new lungs or whatever it is. So um, I thought one of the things that they often test you for up to a year sometimes to make sure you don't have cancer, you don't have any other diseases because those body parts are so precious and there's so few of them that they don't want to, obviously, it seems irresponsible to end up putting in a person who already has cancer, for example. Right. So they're not going to be able to use the body part for very long because they may be, right. may be damaged by cancer treatment or they may die even of the cancer, unfortunately. So right. I thought if... I'm going to kind of do with a win-win. I've never been a gambler, but I thought to myself, I want to increase the odds. Like at least if I'm following, I'm optimizing my health, I'm going to try to rule out cancer for myself. I'm going to try to rule out having severe heart disease. I'm going to try to rule out these other things, um, become a non-diabetic. That's going to make me a better surgical candidate. So that's that also was a reinforcer to follow this way. So that's psychologically, we need to sort of work on looking at a big, getting a big whole picture of our life in context Mm -hmm. to things rather than just one small part of it, of what it does. And I I think it's, it's really been an interesting lesson for myself because as a physician, you're, you're trained to look at outcomes, right? So we're outcome based um, evidence is the measure of success. Um, yes. Your numbers are controlled. Your cholesterol dropped. Your blood pressure is controlled. Your blood sugars are in control. But we never, we miss, you know, they tell us a little bit about, you know, talking to the patient about the spiritual and their mental and all that stuff. But it's not encompassed as a relationship like you, we had discussed earlier with that, yes. you know, we're partner in this, in this journey. But what was really cool for me is to see the evidence of how a whole food plant-based lifestyle changes not only the patient where they're, you know, they're sharing stories of, I had one patient in Colorado who I just adored. Um, she lost like 40 pounds and she goes, I used to just dread going and looking for a dress for a wedding or some type yeah. of event. But now I go in and I'm, I'm wearing trying out three and I'm like, look at me. I look good. <laughs> you know? yeah. And then she's walking out proud and excited. Be outside the external you know, changes physically, she goes, but now what's happening is that my, I have energy to clean the house and my relationships are improved because I have energy to invest in my family and my children and my husband. So now our relationships are stronger. So there's these ripple effects of relationship, yes. more positive outcomes. So then what happens to that? Well, if you're, you're stable home relationship, what happens in your communities, right? So if we have these stable communities and it all goes back to not only feeding yourself these healthy foods that make you healthier but you then you can thrive as a human mm-hmm. and then that thriving allows your relationships to thrive which allow your communities to thrive which all of this is so encompassing so that was really cool to see it as a 
objector, you know, objective yeah. person. In social work, we talk about it, we call it pie, which is person and environment, mm. where we want to really look at the person, but we want to look at them from all aspects. What are their associations, whether it's maybe a church or a religion, a community, a spiritual, a physical, you know, education, um, you know, are they involved with legal, any law issues, like all of those, we want to look at the whole person. We don't want to leave out right. any one of those. And I think that that's really valuable because if you think if you have people that are thriving, that even takes it to, it changes our community environment because we'll probably have more walking paths, we'll have more parks, we'll have, because people will be out there more and they'll be more invested in those things because their bodies feel better when they're out moving and, and walking and enjoying the sunlight right. and, and all of that stuff. And we forget that that little ripple effect because some of my nicest holidays, we go over to Vancouver Island and it's just every day we go for really long walks and I, you know, along the ocean. And like, to me, that's like really wonderful. And right. if someone had said that to me a few years ago, I'd be going, are you kidding? Like, seriously? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> and just sort of marvel at who you discover, all the parts of you that have been left untouched and unexplored uh, right. that you're capable of doing. And I think that, you know, the other thing psychologically is people, when they first hear about eating this way, or they get these comments, well, I, oh, that's way too hard. And I ask people to stop and think for a minute. You know, here's that solution-focused kind of aspect I go after is I go, what other hard things have you ever done? I bet you've done some hard things in your life. Oh, like maybe have children, uh, went to school, uh, drove, like drove, uh, did these different, you know, people have done a lot of hard things in their life mm -hmm. and that didn't stop them. Mm -hmm. And this doesn't stay hard. So it's not only just choosing your hard, but it's also, it does not stay hard forever either. No, it doesn't. Um, it gets easier and easier. And then, then when sort of something hard comes in, because you now have a routine of easier things, it doesn't create the same ripple effect when you're first doing something and you're making bigger changes. Right. It does feel very big. And that's where you have to be extra general with yourself. It's a matter of, you know, um, taking, and that's why I, I know on my website, I talk about self-love solutions for mm -hmm. yourself, um, you know, with others and, and everything like that. And so that gives me back to full circle to your yes. website. Yes. Forksmart.org. Fork it okay. started a, it's a, a gratitude project really for my own health. We didn't want people to have other barriers to getting the information. And Canada is not unfortunately quite as well developed with leaders the way you have many leaders in your country. You also have a much, much bigger country of way mm -hmm. of population and everything. Um, and so we're slowly growing that. So we've, we've have, the ForkSmart Summit every year. It's ForkSmartSummit.com. And um, this year we had in 2017, the Esselstyns come, Dr. Codwell Esselstyn and his wife, Anne, and it was wonderful. He gave a great talk and then she did a cooking demonstration for us. And then last year we had Dr. Anthony Lim, uh, who's the medical director from uh, Dr. John McDougall Center. And Dr. McDougall came on via Skype for us, which was wonderful as well. And um, we really, and we had 
a whole day then of also some cooking demonstrations and other guest speakers that we had. And this year we have three top international speakers. We have Dr. David Jenkins. He's an MD with the University of Toronto. He is the creator of the Glycemic Index. Yep. And, mm-hmm. and he's become vegan in the last several years. And uh, so it's really fascinating. And he's particularly interested in the environment and how we can, you know, it's really be plant-based with a purpose so that we can really make a difference by what we put on our plate really makes a difference about how our planet is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have Dr. Doug Lyle, who's never been to Alberta, I believe. So it's a first for us to have him in Calgary. And he's looking at evolutionary psychology and he's been featured in Forks Over Knives. And so I think he's gonna, he's gonna be talking on the pleasure trap and I think people will find it very interesting. And people who've heard him before, I say it's the difference between hearing a recording of a record and actually a live concert. I think that's what we have to look at when we, oh, I've heard this person on YouTube. But, you know, when the Esselstons came, I said, you know, my son was so blown away with them. I mean, we were too. But he was just, my son was gaga. He's just like 20-something. And he was just like, oh, I can't believe them. And, I, I, and that's the difference to me. It, it was just like you, you got to meet two very self-actualized people who just really, as I said, he sort of, Dr. Esselstyn looked at me when I said that. I said, well, you, you know, excuse my expression, but you got your shit together. And that's really <laughs> nice to have meet people who have, you know. And, uh, and then we have the Jane Esselstyn, daughter of Codwell and Anne Esselstyn, mm-hmm. and she's going to give a talk about above and below the belt and a cooking demonstration. And yes. then we're going to do, for ultimate tickets holders, we're going to do a private reception. And this is our community sort of corner. What we're going to do is have a cuisine challenge. So mm-hmm. people who buy the, the, the ultimate ticket, there'll be a private reception from five to seven. And we're going to ask chefs in the community to prepare, prepare oil-free, whole plant-based uh, items, just small little sample tastings. Uh, so people will get a lot of the different tastings. And the idea is that we really wanted to start the dialogue because it's, that's often really hard. There's people like if they, I would have people, I could be hired to just call up restaurants and order re- food for people because I will go, I want no oil. I will take the, but a lot of people find that to assert themselves that way is really intimidating because they they don't want to feel like they're being rejected or looked at strangely or whatever. Um, And uh, so we really want to start that dialogue that people, there should be. This 2019 has been named the year of the vegan. Uh, It can help Mm -hmm. increase people's restaurant revenue by at least 10% by just offering Mm -hmm. a few menu items that are plant-based mm-hmm. um, because people are looking for that people who are even omnivores want are starting to go well maybe i should have a meatless you know mm-hmm. and my attitude is if we had if you could eat meat on mondays and every other day was non-meatless days we would have a big shift in even our environmental changes oh my goodness. you know we would have let's have meat on mondays is my attitude and not have it through the rest of the week and we'd have people have a, so much better blood pressure blood sugars cholesterol so many more wonderful things and you know 
chefs are creative enough they I think they're counting themselves out if they don't think they can do this no because they really can yeah, and I, I think there should be more of a dialogue and partnership with physicians and chefs. So yes. that's the, you know, food is medicine. And so yeah. those two things go beautifully We together, want people so. to know that there's healing hands at the end of a chef as well. Absolutely. You know? So that's a new initiative for us to try to, like we really want to do it as a community awesome. action kind of thing. And then, it. It, and it really came out of, um, what I've started is a staying power solutions group. And so it's um, going to be broadcast through zoom. Um, we've got it on our ForkSmart website page and I'll be posting something on Instagram, but it's going to be on Saturdays at 10 AM mountain time. And, uh, and it'll be recorded. And then what we'll do is we will put it on our ForkSmart um, YouTube channel for people to watch after but people can come on and we'll present different challenges and we want people we're doing solution building we're looking at ways to build solutions and so people could come away with a menu of solutions for themselves to try and we're going to do this every single saturday Um, and so because we have people that around the world that I am in contact with, you know, uh, and so we want to give them some kind of connected support. Yeah. I mean, the, what you're doing is, so not only did you, <laughs> you're amazing. Not only did you find your, the illness you you're healing, but now you're sharing and giving back to. Yeah. So we many. do have a monthly potluck as well. And uh, <laughs> of course, why not? <laughs> yeah. We do that with a vegetation. And so we're okay. actually having in April, Dr. Uh, Caldwell Usselstone will come to us via Zoom, audio, nice. uh, vi- video conferencing, and he's going to do a question and answer period for a half hour during our potluck. Wonderful. So we're really oh, excited, I, I love excited about that. So um, <laughs> we had Ocean Robbins actually before that, because nice. he, had, he had contacted me and asked me if he, he could share yeah. my story in his first book. Which it is. Yeah, I know. He ended up kindly sending me a copy. I had ordered a copy and I was like, I was kind of debating because I thought, oh, can I afford another book right now? And then I got a note, well, we'd like to send you a free book. I was like, yay. <laughs> no, you're in the book. Actually mentioned a few different times in the book. Oh, am I? I, I didn't that know that. <laughs> that oh, yeah. I read, I read that thing cover to cover. So oh, oh, yeah. I haven't had a chance to read it all yet, Laura. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're, and like I said, you should listen to the interview I posted a couple weeks ago with him, and he talks all about you. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> I will have. I'm not used to, to, to. That's the only strange thing. I'm honestly, I'm usually used to being the, like, say, uh, the, the backstage manager, not, mm-hmm. not, not the, in the, on the front stage, but wow. um, I feel this front stage has a purpose and that's what makes me willing to, to go on the front stage. Absolutely. And I, I think you do a very nice job of presenting Thank it. You. And so I, we could keep talking for hours, but I'm sure <laughs> you and I both have places. We still have the energy <laughs> for it too, Lori. <laughs> Well, I gotta go to a concert. If you notice, my my computer went out before I did. I I didn't realize it was so so low. I I had been working here for a few minutes because I knew we were going to connect, and I was just like, oh, I didn't even realize that because usually I have it plugged (laughs) into my my study, so I I didn't even pay attention to that. 
I have to go to a concert, but usually, you know, I'm in my, my brain is in Pacific time. So my, my work day typically would start, I wake up at three 30 in the morning, work from four to later morning, early afternoon. Then I do the journal. Then I do my other stuff and then I do interviews like this. So I am constantly going, but I'm like ready to go. It's like, listen to, I'm going to listen to amazing singers. And um, so I'm thrilled. And, but what a blessing it has been to talk to you today well I feel it was very you know I'm so glad that you reconnected and I apologize there was a lag period on my part I was fighting through a couple viruses but uh, I feel so blessed as I said to Anne that you know my kidneys were not affected which was really scary for me (laughs) because I can't have um I'm not even a candidate for a kidney transplant actually I've had to face that that was a, a blow I had to to work through a little bit uh, my son had come forward. Uh, I can't have a cadaver kidney. I can't have, um, because it would take so much um, fluid to wake up that kidney uh, for the normal protocol. They have to flood you with fluid that they said with my IPAH that my heart couldn't take it. I would die from that. Wow. So that's out of the question. So we had to look at a kidney transplant. Well, my son stepped forward. He went through, oh, whole battery of tests for almost a year and um and i was supporting him through it because he was living with us at the time going to university and i and he would say to me all the time he says like just tell me you really want you know like for the pain like you know i'm having like thousands of blood tests but for him one was like that would really hurt and i understand that um and because it doesn't hurt less when i have it you know Right, right but i understand it and uh i'd say to him Honey, like, I can't tell you that because it would be like saying, um, you know, I'd have to go into a restaurant and order something. I wouldn't know what was in my wallet. I don't know if I can order for breadsticks or just the water or a main course. I have no idea what's in my wallet because I said, I don't know if this is a good idea for you. Um, I don't know if it's if it's not going to be healthy for you. It's not going to be good for me because that's not what I want out of it. And um and then he was absolutely devastated. He uh, came back in tears one day and told me he got a call and said that he would, could not be a donor because uh, the last test they did we were, would be incompatible. As I said to him, we get along in the family room, we don't get along in the Petri dish. You know? And he was just really devastated. And I said, Thomas, I wouldn't have it any other way because, you know, like, I would never be willing to sacrifice you. And I said, look, if you were doing this for a friend, I would ask you the same question. Is this going to be okay for you too? Because mm-hmm. the friend doesn't need the burden of you not becoming, being unwell. Right. You know, right. no one wants that. Right. So, um, and then it turns out that um, they came in and they, they brought me in then. Finally, days and days later, then they told me the news. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so when the doctor started talking, the nurse started crying and then the doctor couldn't talk. And it turns out they did this last test and I was a hundred percent on the test. And I thought, Hey, that's great. My mom, the teacher would have been happy. And then he said, well, no, it's the worst news possible. It's a hundred percent positive antibodies that, and he said, it'll be like a needle in a haystack ever finding you a donor. So I've come to peace with that. I'm actually at peace with it because I do know I'm trading one set of problems for another. And that's where, again, that collateral beauty, because I was originally put on a, a, a transplant list, monitoring list. 
what I didn't mention in the student, the audience uh, portion of our talk was what's really sad we're, is we're still recording. Oh, are we? Okay. Is that okay? That's fine. Okay. Um, that's great. They'll hear the act. Yeah. What I didn't share is that people's BM, uh, BMI body mass index is so high now that they can't even be a living donor for other people. And that's, that's what a lot of people are unaware of. We have a really serious epidemic situation where people can't, I mean, we have living donors who could give part of their liver and their liver would regrow. They could give one of their kidneys possibly. And um, the, the kidney won't reglow, but the other kidney can sometimes be strong enough, depending on the studies, to be able to last the rest of their life. And, um, but now we have very little um, organ organs available because of the BMI alone. It's our lifestyle. So it's, it's killing people in a whole other way. They won't even have a chance wow. um, at a transplant. Wow. And so I've made peace with that. And yet, and I talked to Michael Greger uh, on the phone one day and I had reached out to him and I got to talk to him and um, you know, the diet I'm on right now is perfect for kidneys. Like it's the best thing possible. So again, again, another collateral beauty that my God, and I'm glad I was a non-smoker, non-drinker before I got ill. And I think, wow, I'm so glad I didn't take the car out of the showroom beforehand. Because look at the accident I got myself into. You know, <laughs> if I had been, if I had been, uh, I've worn out my car before I'd even gotten in the accident, I don't, would have, wouldn't have survived. Yeah. And you know, of the 10 people that we started kind of the support group with, I'm probably one of two that's kind of left at this point wow. of the original group. Wow. So most people died within about two years. Just like and so very, very sad, you know. And uh, I, I was mentioning to you in our pre-talk was that one of the things that really struck me you know, because I'm interested in the social and psychological aspect, is I have five specialists in my life, including my GP, and I mentioned to you that not one of them has ever asked me, what do I eat? Like, you know, they know I'm on a plant-based diet, but they're like, what's a typical day? Um, how do you get along? How, you know, your level of depression or any, nothing, absolutely nothing. But what's so great about this diet is that we're understanding more and more how fruits and vegetables help with mood stability and, and help us feel more bright and alert and have a sense of wellness. And uh, most people who are on this with this diagnosis are on, there's only one handbook in all of North America and it comes out of Rockland, Maryland area. Um, and people are almost automatically put on antidepressants when they're given this diagnosis. And I've never been on one. And um, I really contribute it to, I mean, I was five years, you know, struggling and, and all this, but I really noticed a shift. I, I feel like I'm even calmer. I, I feel, you know, much more content. I don't, you know, I don't have, and people who understand blood sugars, they notice that their behavior gets a little bit more erratic when their blood sugars start acting up and stuff. I don't find, you know, it's, it's kind of like that. Nice, even, you know, it's not the really highs, no lows. Like, that's nice. It's nice, even. It's just like, yeah, I can go along with the flow. And um, it's a really nice mood stabilizer for people as well. 
Yeah, 90% of your good feeling hormones are made in your gut. So it makes sense that you are what you eat, literally. Yeah, you are bacteria. Yeah. (laughs) So it's it's really amazing to me on so many levels. This is really a whole uh, way of living. Yes, it really is. The pun intended, a whole whole, whole lifestyle. Exactly. And I think that, and we, most of us want to be treated as a whole person. You know, we don't want someone to agree with us. We usually want to be understood. And um, more than anything else, we can accept a disagreement a lot of times. Uh, But we really just want to know, do you really understand me first? And I think women understand that when they're like, do you really hear me, husband? You know, or whatever partner. Like, do you really hear me? Because if if you're really saying no to this or rejecting my idea because you've heard me, then I can accept that. But sometimes we're not sure someone's heard us. Right, and And we want to be heard. And sometimes that's what we have to ask of people too. I guess my parting thought would be is that, you know, we have to look around and we actually have to say to people, I know you might not agree with me, but what I need from you is not agreement. I need your support. In other words, that you won't put up roadblocks or you won't make fun of me. You'll just let me do my own thing. And even if it seems weird or strange to you that, you know, I know that you love me and you know, I love, love you. And so mm-hmm. please like accept. And that's really what the greatest gift of love is. It's not about agreement. Um, it's about acceptance. Please mm-hmm. just accept that this is what I believe is helpful for me. I'm not trying to put that on you. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want absolutely. you to accept it for me. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing like agape love. Yeah. So, undeserved love. So yes. Wonderful. All right, my friends, you are incredible. And again, I thank you so much and feel so blessed to have had this conversation. I'm sure there will be many more because we have more stuff to talk about. Yes, absolutely. Thank you everyone for listening. And I, I, I can't imagine not every single ear that listens will be blessed by your experience and what you had to say today. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. 